All right, death, lesson five, the resurrection of the dead, part one. There's a lot to say on this doctrine, and we have a lot to cover, so let's jump into this. You maybe didn't realize it, but one of the core tenets of Christianity is this doctrine called the resurrection of the dead. And even as I've studied it in preparation to write these lessons and looked at it, I had to be honest and say, this is a bizarre doctrine. This is spooky. This is weird, naturally speaking, just from the mindset of a modern Westerner, that we really believe this? And the answer is yes, absolutely. We really, really believe this. The resurrection of the dead is quite possibly the least taught of all of our doctrines. And we're a well-taught church. We've emphasized really nothing but doctrine and the move of the Holy Ghost. But when is the last time we heard any message on the resurrection of the dead, even in faith circles, even in great teaching revivals? Uh, Some of the denominational churches may cover this. Theologians understand it, but I can't say I have ever, ever heard in 22, 23 years of being in church two, three, four services a week. I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon or a teaching on the resurrection of the dead. Our belief in the literal resurrection of the dead bodies of the saints is central to the Christian faith. This is one of these doctrines that if you don't believe it, we have to question your Christianity. Like if you don't believe in the divinity of Christ, we're not sure you're born again. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, we're not sure you're born again. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, Paul says, What's, how, how is that? If Christ be not raised from the dead, then you're dead and your, your faith is in vain and you're dead in your sins. Most religions believe in the immortality of the soul. Most religions believe the soul lives forever. But unique to Christianity is our doctrine of the total redemption and salvation of the entire man, spirit, soul, and body. Now this should start to make common sense because who made your body? God did. The psalmist said, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So your body is the will of God, and you are made in the image and likeness of God. And it pleased him to give you a body. And it's not just to die and go take the dirt nap. There's a purpose behind your body. As one theologian put it, the Bible is not contented with a bodiless eternity. And so you will, as we're going to see in the next couple of lessons, you will have a body for all eternity. Now, should you die today before the resurrection of the dead, you will spend a short term without a body. But at the resurrection of the dead, you will receive a new body and you will spend for all eternity in that body. Because the will of God is for you to have a body. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, given a glorified body, and he still has that body today. Because for whatever reason, it's the divine will of God. There's some things we don't understand why it is the way it is, but it is. Why is it we have two legs? It is what it is. Why is it uh, dogs have four legs? It is what it is. In other words, the salvation of God and eternal life will also be extended to the human body. That is completely unique to the Christian faith. Everybody else believes in nirvana or enlightenment or reincarnation to the next body, to the next body, to the next body. We're not Hindus. We don't believe in reincarnation where we get another body or the body of a dung beetle, the body of a cockatoo or a cow. When we get our next body, it's a glorified one, and that's the one we have for all eternity. Amen. So there are several key points to keep in mind as we study the resurrection of the dead, and I'm going to throw out the key tenets of this doctrine, and then we're going to look at a lot of scriptures over the next two or three classes to help build this understanding. I want you to see what the end result is 
of this doctrine so you can begin to see how the doctrine is built from the scriptures we have. So this, the resurrection of the dead will complete the work of salvation of Jesus Christ in us. We've covered this a couple months ago when we were teaching on soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. And we began to scratch at it then. Uh, you're not completely saved yet because you don't have a glorified body. The resurrection of the dead completes or is the fulfillment of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Even as 1 Corinthians 15 says, and it's one of the last verses we look at today, O death, where is your sting? O death, I will be your enemy. Then it'll be said, then death will be uh, conquered. Death has not been totally defeated yet because you still have to die. But once you get the glorified body, as we'll see, the resurrection of the dead is the complete fulfillment of the destruction of death, and it's the fulfillment of your salvation. This event will result in the salvation of our body. The resurrection of the dead uh, results in the salvation of our body because God is interested in saving everything the curse has destroyed. The curse kills your body. The curse kills your soul. The curse kills your spirit, man. So the salvation of God is threefold. And if you were in those lessons we taught several months ago on soteriology, this should look familiar to you. So the salvation of God through Jesus Christ our Lord is first and foremost for the spirit man because you must be born again. When you sin and die for the first time, you die in your spirit man. When God told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the fruit of the garden, you shall die. And they did eat and they died, but their bodies didn't die for another 900 years. They died spiritually. So you must be born again. We have lots of verses to confirm that. Galatians 6.15 says that nothing profits except a new man, a new creature in Christ. Secondly, the salvation of God is taking place currently in your life, and that is the salvation of your soul. This is your responsibility to renew your mind. Uh, as our church's theme verse, James 1.21, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul where you learn to bring into captivity all your thoughts, all your emotions, all your desires, that it is your soul. Your soul is your mind, your will, your emotions. So part of the salvation of God right now is called discipleship. And we're getting your mind clean and we're getting your emotions lined up with the word and we're always submitting our will to the will of God. And then thirdly, the salvation of God, which is still future tense. See, born again is past tense for us this morning. Discipleship is present tense this morning, and bodily salvation is future tense. So you're not fully saved yet, though we're not questioning whether you're going to heaven or not, but the full manifestation of your salvation has not taken place for anybody yet. The full manifestation of the salvation of God has not taken place for anybody yet because the resurrection of the dead has not happened. Now this begins to stretch our thinking and understanding because Raised in the South, raised Southern Baptist, man, you just came and got your soul saved at the revival. And that's it? No, man, you got another 60 years to live. You got another 80 years to live. You got another 50 years to live. There's a lot more to do. And even then, our body has not been resurrected yet. God is not content without you having a resurrected body. It's his will. The salvation of our body occurs at the resurrection of the dead. That's why this doctrine is so critical. The saints of God will receive new glorified bodies in the last day. And let me read this verse to you. You don't have to turn there. But this is a term we see over and over again in the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead is the term the last day. Uh, Luke, uh, excuse me, John 6, 39 
Jesus said, and this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he has given me I should lose nothing, but that I should raise them up again at the last day. So I will raise them up. There's Jesus talking about the resurrection of the dead. All those that Jesus has been given, that he'll not lose any of, he will raise up again at the last day. That is a resurrection of the dead scripture. So the saints of God, we will receive our new glorified bodies in the last day or at the last day. So there's several scriptures that build that. The resurrection will take place at Christ's coming for the church. Now, as I've studied this, this is what dawned on me and really I thought, shame on me for not looking at this from a different perspective before now. The rapture and the resurrection of the dead are the same thing. The rapture and the resurrection of the dead are the same thing because they which are asleep in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be transformed, shall be changed. Changed into what? Our glorified body. In a moment, a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So folks that don't believe in a rapture have to somehow rectify that with the proven, agreed upon, foundational doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. If you don't believe in the catching away of the saints, as spoken of in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians, when does the resurrection of the dead happen for you in your doctrine? And if you don't believe in a rapture and you don't believe in a resurrection of the dead, then what do you believe in? And can we still consider you a Christian? Now, I think if we want to talk about something else happening and you don't want to call it the rapture because the word rapture is not in the Bible and the word Bible is not in the Bible, nor is the word Trinity in the Bible, but we still believe in those. We have to rectify all these scriptures that speak of this same event. Next point of this doctrine, the dead in Christ will receive their new bodies first, followed by those who are still alive on planet Earth, and they are still alive in their natural bodies, we which are alive and remain. And finally, this will conclude the church age, the, the rapture, the, the resurrection of the dead. For this term, or for this reason, this term, the last day, may in fact be a reference to the last day of the church age. So in the last day, but even at the rapture, we know that's not the last day of mankind's existence. It's not the last day of the tribulation. It's not the last day of the millennial kingdom. It's not the last day of eternity. What is the last day in reference to? It has to be the last day of the church when the church is caught up. Jewish time is inserted again or reactivated. And then Jacob's trouble or the seven years of tribulation, Daniel's uh, 70th week unfolds for those last seven years. All right, the New Testament has many things to say about the resurrection of the dead, and we will cover those in lesson six. This lesson, though, is going to look at all the verses the Old Testament foreshadowed or prophesied about this doctrine. And we have to answer that because when the gospel comes along and we study the gospels, we see that the Pharisees were very entrenched, and one of their doctrines that they were right on was the resurrection of the dead. In fact, there was a big division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees denied the resurrection. The Sadducees denied angels. The Sadducees denied the spirit realm. The Pharisees embraced both, both angels and the resurrection of the dead. And oftentimes they were played against each other for that very moment or that very uh, point. And then we also know Jesus Christ came and taught the resurrection of the dead over and over and over and over and over again. But Jesus Christ did not establish anything new. 
He only magnified what was already prophesied about. He said, go study Moses and the prophets. They speak of me. So let's look at this. The doctrine and hope of a bodily resurrection. And understand, when we talk about the rapture and the hope, this great hope, it is a reference to the resurrection of the dead. The hope of a bodily resurrection was thoroughly established in the Old Testament. We know this from the Gospels. The Pharisees held strictly to a little resurrection from the dead while the Sadducees did not. And these doctrinal differences often set the two factions against each other. Both Jesus and Paul played them against each other on this point, which I find is awesome that they would set their enemies against each other and walk away. Jesus also taught quite often concerning the resurrection of the dead. Let us consider all these Old Testament scriptures the, the Pharisees and the Lord Jesus used to establish the doctrine we're speaking of. So the first time we see it occur in the Bible is with the book of Job. Uh, Job is the oldest book in the Bible, technically written before the Pentateuch, which is the writings of Moses. Job lived before Moses, but Moses' writings cover from the creation onward. All right, you follow that? Job was written before Genesis, though Genesis happened before Job. Okay, Job lived before Moses. There was no covenant. Uh, the peoples of the earth walked with God if they wanted to, and God would appear to them. But God did not make a covenant through the lineage of Job. But the same God that was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses was the God of Job. And you see that when you study the writings of Job, Job only knew God as the Almighty. That's the only term used for God in the whole book of Job. Not El Shaddai, not Jehovah, not Jehovah Rapha. The progressive revelation nature of God was revealed to God's people through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the Jews. To Job, he was only known as the Almighty One. So Job is written before the Pentateuch, or the Torah, the first five books. So let's see what Job had to say in his relationship with God. Job 14 says, So man lieth down and riseth not. So he's talking about death. Till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. There's that reference to death as sleep. Oh, that thou wouldest hide me in the grave and that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be past, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until my change comes. Now this is very profound. If if you don't know what you're looking for, you can read right through that in the book of Job and think, I don't know what in the world he's even talking about. Job answers his own hypothetical question here. If a man dies, shall he live again? We know yes, because we live on this side of the cross and the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament. Job had the understanding that there was a change coming for him sometime after his death. So even with Job and his basic doctrine, he had an understanding that death was not the final say-so in his life. There was a change coming for him. Here the Hebrew word change means a change of garments, relief from death, or a change in the course of life. And all of these are very fitting for the resurrection of the dead. Hide me in the grave until thy wrath be past even seems to foresee the final judgment day of God upon wicked mankind. And then I add, this is a very fascinating observation from the oldest book of the Bible. How can Job, who had some of the worst doctrine of anybody, understand death better than most New Testament spirit-filled believers? Hide me in the grave till your wrath blows over. Don't, don't raise me to destroy me. 
but you're going to raise me because there's a change coming. I have an appointed time when my body, my life is going to be changed. Job says something five chapters later. He says, for I know that my redeemer liveth. That's a pretty profound statement from the oldest book of the Bible. My redeemer lives. Hillsong's made a good song about it about 20 years ago. 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. My redeemer lives and he shall stand upon the earth. And uh, the latter day upon the earth. That almost sounds like the Lord Jesus coming back uh, on the Mount of Olives. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now wait a minute. My redeemer lives. He's going to come back and stand on the Mount of Olives. And after the worms eat this body of mine, I'll still see God in the flesh. Wow, Job. What are you insinuating? How are you speaking out of your head here? Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Now, John says in 1 John, no man has ever seen God. But Job says in the future, my Redeemer lives, and in the last days he will stand upon the earth, and though the worms eat my body, I will see him with my own eyes and in my own flesh. He's foreseeing the resurrection of the dead. That's the only way you, the, the worms can eat your flesh, and you still see God with your own eyes and with your own body. Another interesting divine insight from Job, he said he would see his God in the flesh and with his own eyes, even after the worms had destroyed his skin. No man can see God or has seen God. So this seems to allude to Job's resurrected body yet to come. We, <laughs> these, we forget these men like Moses, or maybe not Moses, but um, uh, Enoch, Job. Some of these men walked with God for hundreds of years. And God would appear to them. God even calls to Job at the end of the book of Job and says, Answer me if you have any wisdom. We have no idea what God revealed to these men in their day that we don't have any record of, that we have no written. We have no idea the divine insights, the nature, the things God showed these men that were not written for our benefit. We have no idea what they saw. We have experiences recorded by Abraham and Moses that our mind can't even comprehend. That when Abraham made the sacrifice in the covenant, he took the animal, cut it in half, and he said, a lantern of fire that passed between the two, and behold, great darkness. And it terrified Abraham, and God said, I will be with you, and this is my covenant. We don't have these kind of experiences, but they did. And so we, it shouldn't surprise us that they're able to see 4,000 years into the future, 5,000 years into the future, 1,000 years into the past. Because this is God we're talking about. Don't try to put God into your little modern American uh, four-year degree uh, Discovery Channel Nat Geo understanding. <laughs> this is God we're dealing with. Note the confidence with which he makes this last statement. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. But John says nobody sees God. But Job said I shall one day. In fact, 1 John says, we know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him face to face. Nobody's had that privilege yet except the Son, the Lord Jesus. All right, Psalm 16, verse 9 through 11. The psalmist David writing, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. 
Now, the New Testament talks about the hope of our salvation. The New Testament talks about that, that hope of glory. And this is all references to the resurrected body. My flesh shall rest in hope, for thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will you suffer your Holy One to see corruption, speaking of the body. Thou will show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is a messianic prophecy written by David, but the first application of this scripture is toward David himself. David could foresee by the Spirit of God that he, David, would not be left in hell, Sheol, the grave, and that he would see a new body one day. How else could he say, my flesh also has hope, except you're not going to leave me in hell and you're not going to let me see corruption, corruption referring to the flesh. But he said, my flesh rests in hope because there's a resurrection coming for me. Psalm 16 is prophesying about the resurrection. We also know as a messianic prophecy, it is prophesying about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was the first fruits, the first seed sown to raise up many brethren. Amen. All right. Are you with me okay? Have you made it through the holidays? This isn't hammering you like it was last week. Can you tell the total difference in the atmosphere? Because uh, we are still under a season of pruning, so it doesn't matter what I teach. If we're being pruned... It's going to be miserable. I can tell it's a lot more light in here. So be happy with me. <laughs> be excited. At least act like you've never seen these scriptures in this light before because you're all going to die one day. But it's not today. And you're going to be resurrected with a better body, a little bit skinnier, a little bit better looking, hopefully. For some of you, I don't know. I'm, uh, Lord, put more glory on them so we can't hardly even look upon their face <laughs> psalm 17 verse 15 as for me i will behold your face in righteousness i shall be satisfied when i awaken from the dead with your likeness david that's uh it's a little profound a little bold i will behold your face in righteousness nobody can see god and I will be satisfied when I awaken with your likeness. That comes back to 1 John. We know that when we see him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him face to face. Psalm 17 is talking about the resurrection of the dead, and it's prophesying about what's to come. This is David's second prophecy concerning the resurrection of the dead. No man can see God and live, yet David, like Job, declared with great boldness that he would awake with the likeness of God and behold his face in righteousness. This is not a psalm about awakening to a morning prayer time. This is clearly about awakening from the dead. You can't awaken in the morning with God's likeness. You're going to awake in the morning, you're going to have dragon breath. You're going to have eye boogers. You're going to be grouchy, crabby until you get Jehovah Java brewing in the crock pot or whatever, your coffee grinder. Then you're going to roll out and go pray. And after about 30 minutes of motorboating in tongues, you might have a little bit of glory on you. So you can't interpret this as I awake in the morning with your likeness. No, you don't. You awake in the morning and you stink and you need a shower and you need to wake up and give God the glory, glory and, and say arise and shine. And this is the day the Lord has made and jumpstart your day. 
Otherwise, it's just not working for you. So we can see very clearly, when I awaken, I will awaken with your likeness. Awaken from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Amen. Isaiah 26. Isaiah chapter 26. This is so fascinating to me. There are all these verses in the Old Testament from which the Pharisees built this doctrine. We, it should have occurred to us that they, if they believed in the resurrection of the dead, those guys were sticklers for the law. They had to have built it upon something. For all their faults, they at least were protectors of the word of God, and they knew the word, and they weren't going to make up anything. Those guys were so serious, they tithed on spices, mint and anise and cumin. So it should have dawned on us that if they believed in the resurrection and Jesus agreed with them on this point, where do they build this doctrine from? How did they know to look for a Messiah? Where are the scriptures that talk about that? More than the modern church, which has grown so incredibly shallow, teaches us how to have our best Tuesday ever and how to sin without feeling guilty for it. I don't know what's happened to the doctrine in the church of the Lord Jesus. But our whole existence is built upon the doctrines of God Almighty from the scriptures that we ought to be spending time in every day. These verses have been there all along. And even for me in studying this, I went to commentaries that were over 100 years old. And these doctrines were studied and written. And they didn't have word processors when books were published in 1903. If a book was published in 1903, it was hand typed for 20 years prior. And then taken to the publisher. Amen. Isaiah 26, 19. Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Pretty blatant. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. Remember Daniel? He said, those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise. For thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. All of that is very prophetic towards the last days of judgment. Thy dead men shall live. He's prophesying to Israel. Together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust. For thy dew is as the dew of the herbs, and thy earth shall cast out the dead. We saw previously in lesson two that bodily death is referred to as a sleep and sleeping in the dust of the earth. And I, Isaiah maintains that same imagery here. And Isaiah said, the dead shall live with Isaiah's body. They shall rise one day. He said, with my own body, they shall rise. Isaiah's prophesying about the resurrection of the dead. Because think about this. This is the Middle East. It's hot and arid. Things mummify really quickly. Things rot very quickly. Things go decay very quickly. How in the world could he be saying this except for this resurrection of the dead? And we have to be open for this. We have to believe this. If somebody comes to you and says, you believe in that resurrection of the dead? You say, absolutely, you don't. I think it's uh, fascinating that modern science wants to try to do brain transplants. How is that going to work? And even if you do a brain transplant, can you transplant the spirit in the soul? You can't. Just like these um, pet lovers that clone their favorite dog or their favorite llama or cat, thinking they're going to get Fifi back. You can reproduce the DNA, but it doesn't mean you reproduce the soul. And it's appointed unto man once to die. And once that happens, you're not coming back. All these ethical or bioethical questions that we just don't honestly care about because we deal with spiritual things. Amen. 
Isaiah maintains the same imagery here. Uh, the dead shall live, and with Isaiah's body they shall rise one day. This is the resurrection of the dead. Daniel 12.2 is a verse we've looked at several times so far in our studies. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now this is where things get a little cloudy. And I don't have clear doctrine on this. I have not found any theologian, any commentator, any profoundly wise person. I don't know if this is beginning to say that even the wicked, when they're resurrected, they get a body too. It does say that we shall be awakened. They that sleep in the dust of the earth shall be awakened, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. As it is this morning... I want to lean towards the belief that even the wicked will receive a new body. For no other reason than here in Daniel it says both the righteous and the wicked are resurrected. But resurrection instantly infers a body. Any more than that, and you're really stretching out on conjecture, but... How can you resurrect someone from the dead and not give them a body if the righteous are resurrected and giving a glorified body? Maybe, this is all conjecture, me studying this really for the very first time, just a few weeks ahead of you as I teach this, maybe as we receive a glorified body, they are resurrected and giving a damnable body or a cursed body, something they will suffer forever in torments with. We serve God forever with our body, and as a theologian observed in the beginning of our lesson, the Bible does not seem contented with a bodiless eternity, whether we're in hell, the second death, the lake of fire, or we're in eternity with Christ in the millennial kingdom or the ages to come. So I want to throw that out there for you to study and to think about, because this is something you've never considered, because I never even scratched it till about two or three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, in searching all this out. Daniel's prophecy may be one of the clearest declarations of this coming event. Daniel introduces the notion that the resurrection of the dead will include everyone, not just the righteous. Even the wicked will be resurrected. Now, again, if it's a resurrection and Christ is the type, and even the man that was raised from the dead when he was thrown on the body of Elisha's bones, he was revived, his body, a resurrection infers a body. If we're resurrecting the wicked out of the grave, they're not going to be disembodied spirits roaming the earth. That's not a resurrection. So again, there, there seems to be an insinuation that there is a glorified body, not for them, for us, but we'll call it the damnable body or the cursed body. I don't know what the opposite of glorified is except for damnable. I've never heard that taught. I don't think it's heresy. I think it's something we're just too busy checking Facebook and, you know, drinking lattes to bother to study or search out. But it's worth looking at. We'll see a little bit more of this next lesson when we talk about the New Testament scriptures about the resurrection. Jesus confirmed this in John 5, 29, where he differentiates between the resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. In fact, let me go ahead and read that to you because we have time to do that this morning. John 5, 29. Jesus said, All shall come forth. Well, let me back it up. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, 
and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. That's the words of Jesus Christ in John 5, 29. They that have done good will come forth into the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil will come forth into the resurrection of damnation. So there is a resurrection of damnation. But there again, there's that word resurrection. Acts 24, verse 15 says the same thing. And we have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Paul preaching says uh, concerning his disagreement with the Pharisees that they allow a hope towards God, which we share. That hope towards God is there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. So I want to present to you, prove me wrong or give me a better explanation, that when the dead are resurrected on the last day, they'll be given a body as well to suffer with for all eternity. What does the worm eat but a body, unless it is a supernatural worm? And we're getting into things that are unknown that are yet future tense, but it's in the Bible, and they're worth studying. And this is why I love, I can say I've never been on Facebook, because why would I want to waste my life following your eating habits or your chubby kids when there's so much in the Bible I don't know? Amen. All right. Hosea. Boy, you wouldn't think some book like Hosea. Is there a book in the Bible called Hosea? Is he on Facebook? Who cares? Hosea 13, 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. Now, this one gets tricky. This is so profound here. I love the nuances of God's word because he is so much smarter than even the smartest smarty guy. Watch the subtlety here. God says, I will ransom them, my people, from the power of the grave. Now, the grave is hell, Sheol. That's where the spirit man goes. And I will redeem them from death. That's a reference to the physical body. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Does that sound like a familiar passage from the New Testament? I've quoted that so many times at gravesides. I always love to go to 1 Corinthians 15 at the graveside of funeral services and read this passage. But it was first prophesied in Hosea when God said to death, I will be your plague. I like that, that our God looked at death and said, I will plague you. And then looked at the grave and said, grave, I will be your destruction. But notice there is a difference between death and the grave. The grave is for your body. Excuse me, death is for your body. The grave is for your spirit and your soul. Hell, the the eternal chamber we looked at in lessons one, two, and three. So God assaults both of them. And he says, I will be the undoing of the grave and I'll be the undoing of death. Death is what comes for your biology because you you don't die. You live forever, whether in hell or in heaven. But your body is limited. But this is prophesying about both the salvation of your spirit and the redemption of your body, which has been there all along. And yet the prophets, even though they prophesied it, I don't believe they had full understanding of everything they were saying. There is this doctrine when it comes to the science of hermeneutics that says some people believe, and I I don't agree with it, I don't see how it's possible that everything every Bible author wrote they had full understanding of. And I don't subscribe to that. You might. That's to say, David, every time he wrote a psalm, he understood the full implication of that psalm for eternity. 
I don't think you can say that. I don't personally believe Paul had full understanding of everything he wrote when he wrote it. I think he had understanding, obviously, because he had to write it, but the implication of what it would do for the ages to come, I don't see how he could possibly understand the fullness of it. Same with Hosea. Hosea's declaring this thing. I don't think he had full understanding of everything he was saying because even salvation, the angels still try to look into and they don't get it. You and I have been born again decades. We're still scratching the surface of what it really means to be born again and to have the fullness of the Godhead in us through Christ Jesus. Hosea prophesied about the work of Christ and part of its atoning power. So the work of Christ and part of the atoning power would ransom us from death's effect on our body and the grave's power over our spirit. So the work of Jesus Christ, part of it, ransomed us from death's effect on our body, which is the resurrection. It's going to culminate in the resurrection of the dead and the grave or hell's power over our spirit, which we beat with the new birth. In short, this verse predicts the new birth and the new body. The new birth and the new body. The new birth and the new body. This prophecy is quoted in 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, as a conclusion to Paul's lengthy teaching on the resurrection. I may have to write a whole lesson just on 1 Corinthians 15 because there's about 40 verses where, the, where Paul defends the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and says, how can you not believe in this? Then he goes on to explain how it's going to be. One of the things we'll look at next week or maybe the th a week after, is that even in the resurrection of the dead, Paul says it's going to be like the glory of the stars. And not all stars are equal in their brilliance, which to me says that even in our resurrection, not everybody's resurrection, resurrected at the same level of glory. There'll be different stages and calibers. And it may be, if I'm accurate in that, that we'll see big fancy pants ministers and there'll be dim light bulbs. And we'll see people we never knew who maybe were handicapped or living in the slums who were resurrected gloriously because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Amen. Next lesson, we will look at the nature of the uh, resurrection of the dead and the glorified body. So Paul said here, 1 Corinthians 15, he said, So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality. So, okay, when this corruptible, talking about your body, shall have put on incorruption. That's the glorified body. And this mortal, referring to your flesh, some of you, do you realize you're mortal? If you have body odor that needs bathing, you are mortal. That's bacteria trying to rot you today. This mortal shall have put on immortality. One of the reasons they have to embalm you is uh, the bacteria in your gut after you die and they, they digest the food, the bacteria has to look for something else. And when your body's not alive to uh, keep everything in balance, the bacteria turns on your body and you begin to rot internally. That's why if you ever see an animal on the side of the road and if you drive past it and you, the highway doesn't come by and pick it up or the inmates come by and pick it up, if you'll watch it, you'll watch them begin to bloat. That is all the bacteria digesting the innards of that animal. That's how you know you're mortal because if we left you in the hot sun, you'd turn a little puffy too. We, we call it, you turn all rotisserie. Your meat would just fall off the bone. I told you the story about my friend who was the animal control expert and he was called out on DOAs 
That means dead on arrival. The, he's an animal control guy, so he'd get phone calls. We have a smell under the trailer. And so they would be called, and after they ran the mission <laughs> to recover the body, one of the terms they had, whether it was a cat, a possum, a coon, a dog, squirrel, a bat, a bird, one of the terms they had was called drip kitty. So what was that DOA? Total drip kitty. What did that mean? That meant you went to go retrieve the animal with a shovel, and as you scooped him up, the body part just sloughed apart. That's because they're mortal. And the bacteria that helps you process food and enzymes and all that begin to work against it. And now you're a rotisserie cat that just a slight little shovel and uh, the arms and legs fall off the cat, the heads rolls off because it's rotten. Some people, I have to tell you that because you think you're immortal and you're not. You have to take care of your body so that you can finish your race. So when your corruptible body shall have put on incorruption and your mortal body shall put on the immortal body of the new glorified body, then shall be brought to pass that saying that is written. Okay, now pause there. So have your, has your body put on the immortal body yet? No. Has anybody's? Just Jesus. Has your incorruptible or your corruptible body put on the incorruptible body yet? No. Nobody's has, just Jesus. When that does happen, which will be at the rapture, the catching away of the saints, the harpezo, as the Greek word says, then it shall be fulfilled. Not until. Then it shall be fulfilled, that is which is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is a reference to your body. The grave is a reference to your spirit. Then it shall be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in the victory. So death is still alive. Death is still winning because human beings are still succumbing to mortality and corruption. But when we get raptured, when the resurrection of the dead happens, then Hosea's prophecy from over 2,000 years ago will finally be brought to pass. That's the resurrection of the dead. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? So he quotes all of Hosea. So this is what we're marching towards. This is the beginning foundation of this doctrine, the resurrection of the dead. And the more I study this, the more I'm excited to see death. Not anytime soon. Don't, I'm not, I don't have a suicide pact. I'm not... Uh, uh, I'm trying to take care of my body and I don't do stupid stuff anymore like I used to. In fact, I turned down the opportunity to go to the jump house with the kids. Uh, they said, why? I said, because I can't stand to be lukewarm at anything and I'm not good at the flips and dips and tumbling and I would probably hurt myself or tweak something and so it's just better I not do it because I'm getting a little older. Not as, not as old as most of you, but I am getting a little bit older. <laughs> Praise God, the resurrection will be the final victory over death. And then the death and grave and the grave will be thrown into the lake of fire after the millennial kingdom. And so we'll cover that too. Uh, and we'll, we'll sort all these things out. If in the next week or two you have any questions on anything we've covered so far, please email them to me. And I can see about sorting out any of this or bringing clarity uh, trying to fill in the gaps or answer questions because the next question is, is there a resurrection of the dead after the rapture? Is there a resurrection of the dead at the end of the millennial? Is there a resurrection of the dead after this, at the end of the church age? And we'll try to answer those uh, and see what we can do. Amen?